Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. Those of you who tuned in to episode 33 will be familiar with the Savannah Institute by now. Well, today I talk with Katie Adams. She leads their Illinois Demonstration Farm program and helps build community through agroforestry education across the state and beyond. As we have progressed in the podcast series and in our own personal experiences, Dimitri and I have come to realize how important the human relationships and cultural perceptions were to successful agroforestry projects. Sometimes even more so than technical or economic constraints that we have often exposed here. This is why I'm so thrilled that Katie and I explore together how the Savannah Institute builds relationships with different stakeholders to make agroforestry projects become a reality in the Midwest. We engage with themes such as culture in relation to agroforestry and the multiple ways the Savannah Institute is leveraging change. We also took the time to discuss their demonstration sites, their design methodology working with local farmers, as well as debriefing on certain of their mistakes and lessons learned. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Katie, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Maybe we could start by you telling us a bit about how you got involved with agroforestry. Sure. It's kind of a, it's kind of a long story. I feel like my trajectory is a anthropologist turned no-till veggie farmer turned agroforester. <laughs> so these things don't seem to be related, but there's actually quite a few of us, at least in the United States, that have kind of wandered our way to trees and, and agroforestry. Um, but my my background and training is really in relationship building through my, my work in agroforestry. So my master's degree focused on the ways that uh, small scale farmers build relationships through seed saving and the exchange of mushroom cultures um, and start to build kind of regionally adapted varieties such as garlic or ginger and start to share knowledges um, to prop up kind of entire farming systems. And so my my career in farming kind of started through doing that work where I realized that I enjoyed the actual work of agriculture way more than I enjoyed the writing and thinking about agricultural, although I still do that today. Um, and then I became a no-till veggie farmer and did that for close to four years. And my body was really tired. <laughs> and um, I became increasingly interested in the trees that were growing as part of the no-till veggie system that I was working in at a, a farm and nonprofit called Earth Dance Organic Farm School. And they had pretty intensive vegetable fruit alley cropping happening, although I had no idea it was called alley cropping. Um, we kind of called it permaculture and intercropping and things like that. And when I decided to move on from that job, um, I was looking for work within the more perennial realm and trying to look for things that um, were kind of outside of the vegetable farming background. 
And I came to, to find a job with Kevin Wools, who's the co-executive director of the Savannah Institute. And that job really introduced me to what agroforestry was, because I honestly had never heard that term until about four years ago <laughs> when I found that job. So kind of a winding path. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's amazing to see uh, all the different ways people interact with agroforestry as well, and um, and also that's why we wanted to talk with you today and and also explore a bit about that um, more social side to agroforestry and farming and creating relationships and creating change through relationships. But before we go to that, uh, why don't you tell us a bit more about the Savannah Institute and how it operates? So the Savannah Institute is a nonprofit organization that's based in the Midwestern United States, and we're really focused on the catalyzation of widespread agroforestry um, in the Midwestern U.S. and beyond. So we do this in a couple different ways. Um, we kind of focus on three different areas. The first is research. Um, so we have folks on staff that are really looking at what are the productive, resilient tree crops for fruit and fodder for agroforestry systems that would work here in the Midwest specifically. And then also looking at building robust supply chains. So what are all the other structures that are needed to make agroforestry not only possible, but profitable um, here in the Midwest, but also the greater United States as well? And then we have a research team that's also looking at different things like water quality and carbon sequestration and um, research around the practices that we employ on the landscape. And then the second big arm of what we do is can kind of be classified as like generally the farming systems that create agroforestry. So um, looking at the different ways that these practices create economic and ecological resilience. And this is kind of where our demonstration farm program ties in. So the Savannah Institute operates a network of demonstration farms to show what agroforestry looks like in different places and all the possibilities. Um, and then we also have an apprenticeship program, which pairs um, folks that are interested in learning how to do agroforestry with um mentor farmers that have been doing this work for an extended amount of time and have an immense amount of knowledge and wisdom to share. And then we also just offer a ton of online and in-person resources such as field days and events and a annual perennial farm gathering, as well as an online course, which is currently free right now to everyone. So we've been building this online course to really make agroforestry education accessible. And then I guess the third kind of arm of what we do is community development and relationship building. So humans are an integral part of our ecosystems and a major part of agroforestry. So it's, it's one of our focuses to help build communities around this work. So bringing together farmers and researchers and investors and folks that are really interested in making agroforestry um, a force on the landscape. Uh, within all these amazing things, what, what is your role specifically then? Yeah, so my role is, my, I guess my title is Community Agroforester. And I do this work in the state of Illinois here in the Midwest, which is a major corn and soy producing state. Uh, most of the agriculture that happens here is corn and soybean production. 
um, with a little bit of wheat, but mostly those two major crops. And broadly, my role is to help farmers, landowners, organizations, and agencies see agroforestry as possible on their landscapes. So that's a lot of education. It's a lot of outreach and just a lot of really long, deep conversations with folks to really understand, you know, like what's happening in their lives and in their farm landscapes. How can agroforestry fit into that and be productive for uh, the ecosystem, be productive for their families and for the community at large? Because we really need supportive systems that go all the way from the farm scale to the legislature to make sure that we have, you know, the support and the funding and also kind of the acceptance that's needed for more trees to be on the farm landscape. Well, yeah, that's that's fascinating. And it echoes with um, something I've realized recently um, in the process of, of planting trees on the farm where uh, I'm farming and, and, you know, uh, I'm not owning the land, I'm renting it off and having to uh, convince the farmer that's leasing the land to me that it would be valuable to add trees. And many of the obstacles aren't economic because there's funding at the moment. It's not even technical because, you know, it's simply putting hedges out. We're not attempting to do something so complex, but it's definitely cultural. And it's about his uh, perception and understanding of what the landscape should be uh, what was it before? Where should it go? Uh, what are the roles of trees? And I find that fascinating because we, we often overemphasize more the economics and the technical with Dimitri in the podcast. And increasingly, I'm realizing that a lot of the blockages are much more on a cultural level. And I'm wondering if that's something you experienced as well when you work in community building. Yeah, I mean, the situation that you find yourself in is a situation that we find ourselves in here in the Midwestern United States. So it's something that's shared, I think, across a lot of different geographies and, and landscapes. And I think like the your point of people thinking of what should a farm look like or how should a farm function is a little bit at the heart of that. Um, because so many, as you said, so many of those kind of Hard points are um, are cultural and they're not economic or ecological because we have good data, right? Like we have the numbers to show that um, trees are sinking carbon, they're you know purifying water, they they increasingly can um, create more production and, and more profits per acre than say uh, grain monocrops, but it doesn't look right to folks, and the time scale is completely different. Uh, we're so used to an annual cropping cycle or even, you know, even a two or three year cropping cycle or rotations. And when we bring trees into it, we're suddenly making a long term investment. <laughs> I mean, these are things that are going to be on the landscape for a long time. And folks, especially here in the United States, I think we have a pretty short memory and, and a pretty short history. So we think of things in one generation instead of in multiple generations. And trees force us to confront that we're not going to be able to control something or a farm or a landscape or a system for one lifetime. Trees kind of force us to look beyond one singular lifetime and, and look more to the future. And so those are really hard conversations to have with folks because ultimately they're conversations around value and timelines and legacy and all of these things that annual cropping systems just don't force us <laughs> don't force us to look at. 
And so, you know, once you've established that this is cultural, how do you actually proceed in trying to uh, take the conversation forward? What kind of stories or what angles do you take in engaging that dialogue? Yeah, this is something that I definitely don't have, you know, a for sure or clear answer on because it's something that we're continually working on. And every person we talk to is different and they come to agroforestry from all different types of backgrounds and histories and uh, passions and and things that they they value. Um, so oftentimes the conversation around agroforestry isn't one that we start right away, but it's one that comes in a little bit later. So for folks that come to us and want to do agroforestry, it's a little bit of a different conversation. But for, say, farmers or landowners that we're looking to work with or uh, specifically in situations where the landowner is very interested in agroforestry, but the farmer that they work with is not familiar or, or maybe very hesitant or skeptical, then it's often a conversation around, well, I would just want to know about you as a person, as a farmer, um, the types of things that you're interested in. Like, why do you do this work? What motivates you to do it? Is it because, you know, you're called to do, to farm? Um, you know, is it something that's a family legacy? Is it something where you feel like you're contributing to the greater good or, you know, feeding folks in your community or oftentimes in the United States, the, the line is we feed the world, right? So <laughs> farmers feed the world. So having sort of an understanding of how people view themselves within their farms and, and, the, and the larger kind of farm landscape and ecosystem can then help us figure out how we can build bridges within that. So for example, I had a meeting with a farmer that I work with on Friday and we sat and talked for an hour and a half and maybe only 15 minutes was actually about agroforestry, <laughs> where we were talking about plans for next year and what was going to be happening on the landscape and the lease and those sort of things. But it was only about 15 minutes. And the whole hour and 15 was more generally around me asking lots of questions about his year this year and asking clarifying questions about, you know, some of his processes and um some other work that he's engaged in off the landscape that we work on together. And then we also talked about our families. Um, I'm about to have my first child. And so he was giving me some words of wisdom and talking about his children and things like that. And to me, that sort of deep relationship building is extremely important for this because agroforestry is, is a long-term investment. And when we make long-term investments in people, then we're able to make long-term investments on the landscape too, because we've come to we've come to a um, a mutual trust with each other. Because I value him as a person, I value him as a farmer, and I value him as a as a partner. So if we can trust each other to make good decisions and be transparent, then we have a transformational relationship instead of one that's just transactional, where we're each trying to get as much as what we can <laughs> from the relationship or, or the landscape. Um, so I think this focus on transformational relationships is, is really key because that's really what we're trying to do within perennial systems and agroforestry is make transformational choices. So things that are going to take um, 
take a landscape or a growing system from one place to another in a way that is regenerative and and um, and based on good relationships. And just to understand how uh, you work, because you were talking about long-term relationships, so that means that when you work with uh, uh, farmers or a landowner, you really accompany them in the long term. Um, you kind of help them design, but then also kind of uh, stay present with them uh, on the long run. Yeah, so within our demonstration farm program, you know, we're always around and we're, we're constantly checking in with uh, the landowners, with the farmers. We're inviting them to present and be present at field days and educational events. Uh, we pay them for their time as needed as well. So um, the time to help design systems or to, you know, come see a practice that we're wanting to implement on their farm landscape. Like, yeah, like we know that you're taking time out of your life and, and your job to come do this. So we'd be happy to compensate you for that. Um, and so it's we want to be there for the long haul. So when folks work with me and when folks are with Savannah Institute, you know, we're invested long term in that. And there's always going to be one or two people that you're always going to see or talk to um, so that you have that constant thread of of consistency. And then within our um, technical service provider program, which pairs landowners and farmers with someone at the Savannah Institute that can walk them through the process of planning for agroforestry, applying for funding, doing design work, and then helping them find resources to put that um, agroforestry design on the landscape. We pair the, the landowner, the farmer with someone in their state. So there is a community agroforester and a technical service provider in both the state of Illinois and Wisconsin. And so those pairs work with a farmer or landowner through the entire process of kind of what we what I like to call like ide, ideation to implementation, which is kind of a mouthful and not something that I would probably use with farmers <laughs> or landowners. That's kind of the way we think about it is, you know, you're going to have a stable relationship from just the idea of agroforestry to tree planting. And then you'll have a resource within the Savannah Institute kind of beyond that too. But ultimately what we hope will happen and what we're building towards is that this, once trees are in the ground, folks can create a community of practice for themselves so that their, you know, farmers and landowners are regularly interacting and sharing ideas and resources amongst themselves in ways that are more regionally located and adapted than someone at the Savannah Institute who's just there um, because all the knowledge base is being created on the ground. And we have some of that through our demonstration farm program, but it's really the farmers and landowners that are, you know, really pushing innovation, are really building these like connected systems. And we, at a certain point, we want to step out of the way and let folks guide that ship. No, that sounds uh, amazing. I mean, we always feel the need for like being able to share experiences uh, in a really localized manner. And yeah, as more and more projects get out of the ground, um, definitely that will probably happen on a much more local scale. And that's very exciting. Um, I still wanted to understand, you know, when going back to these perceptions of agroforestry and getting back to understanding what people, how they think about their, about themselves and about their farming practices, 
Uh, in your experience, what has been like a driver for change? Um, and what's been the elements of agroforestry that have been interesting farmers or landowners for that matter? You know, what, what kind of part of the story attracts people? It's different for every person. So for the most part, um, everyone kind of that we've worked with comes to it from a different angle. So some folks are really interested in agroforestry for uh, climate resilience. So their main motivation is, you know, tree planting and, and putting in agroforestry systems that will directly sequester carbon and build soil health and do kind of the work that uh, the majority of farmers in their area necessarily aren't doing on their farms yet. Um, and really wanting to be kind of a leader within that kind of climate resilience movement. Um, some folks are really interested in creating strong legacies for their, for their families. Um, so one farmer that we've worked with here in Illinois, he was really interested in planting chestnuts to keep his family engaged in the farm. So, um, you know, he was, I think he was maybe the third or fourth generation on this farm landscape. He wasn't currently farming and uh, he was seeing his family become less and less engaged with the family farm. So they had a, a family meeting and discussed how chestnuts might work within that. And then everyone agreed that like, yeah, chestnuts would be a great way for us all to stay engaged. And then they planted, um, you know, acres of chestnuts where it was four generations that were doing the planting and actively engaged in the business planning. So now folks have reason to come back to the farm and to stay engaged on that land. And then some folks are purely profit-driven. So they see the, the economic opportunities within that and have the capital resources to invest the, the time and money to set up a longer-term perennial system. And then there's folks like my husband and I and many of our young farming friends that don't see any other option <laughs> but to include perennials within our farm business planning uh, because we don't have options for crop insurance. Uh, we don't have options for subsidies through the government. So it's up to us to build our own insurance into our farm businesses and we see perennials as part of that long-term business planning and, and, and farm stability. Well, and, you know, after hearing all this diversity of motives, uh, probably there's not going to be one answer either at all. But I'm wondering, and, you know, as you, as you see things change, as you engage with different people, um, what do you see as the main obstacles that need to be dealt with in order to really shift this agricultural culture uh, and, and, and kind of, change scale because it feels at the moment like it's been a while now that there's a lot of initiatives with agroforestry but it's still quite like unique projects and and we're still needing to kind of shift gears and really seeing it um, come up at a, at a massive scale. Um, yeah I think you know some of in the US I think there's the big barriers that we talked about earlier are around, you know, cultural ideas about farming and productivity. So what makes a farm and what makes a farm productive? Um, we specifically see this when it comes to, uh, quote unquote, taking land out of production for agroforestry, which is kind of an oxymoron, right? Because we're 
taking land out of production to put it into longer term production, but it's not seen as productive um, uh, because we think of productivity in the United States as yield. And if we're not getting a certain bushel per acre of grain, then it's not a productive acre. Um, And so that also ties into, that's not just like an idea that comes out of nowhere. It's really tied to the way that the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture and other sort of government and federal entities and funders look at what farming is. So um, our commodity system that basically creates and maintains markets for particular crops um, pretty much ensures that those are the only things that we see on our landscape in any great scale because they have, you know, they're the commodity markets that are supported and commodity markets that the government um, ensures will continue in production because there's an incredible amount of land and resources that are tied into that. And also our crop insurance system here in the U.S. also ensures that only particular crops stay on the landscape because there's only particular crops and particular systems that can be insured. So this is slowly changing, which is really exciting to see. So now we're starting to see some like whole farm revenue insurance policies. Um, We're starting to see some more diversified, smaller scale insurance options. Um, But still many of those are outside of what farmers diversified civically farmers can afford um, because you constantly have to balance the risk versus the cost. And um, some folks, as I mentioned earlier, decide to put that that cost into diversifying their systems even more rather than taking out an insurance policy. Um, But all of that also comes down to access to capital. So if you go to a traditional bank in a rural area like where I live and you say, I want to put in a alley cropping system with perennial fruits and nuts, uh, annual vegetable production, and have livestock rotate throughout that, the bank is going to say, I've never seen this before. This is incredibly risky. There is zero way that we're going to give you an operating loan to start up this business. Um, But... There's also creative ways that folks are, you know, crowdfunding capital or um, or working within government or financial programs to finance one part of it and then incorporating a whole second element into it that maybe they're not, <laughs> they're either not expressing or they're letting them know that this is a second part of my farm business, um, but it's not going to impact the funding that you're giving me at all. And then I think one of the biggest ones for civically young beginning and returning farmers is the land consolidation and land price in the U.S. is um, distressing, to say the very least, and makes systems and especially perennial systems seem impossible. Um, When you're on rented lands, Number one, it can be incredibly expensive. Um, Number two, there's no guarantee unless you have an extremely long-term lease that you're going to be able to be on that land for a long period of time. And uh, planting perennials becomes a hard thing to do when you don't know if your financial and time investment will pay off on that rented land. Um, and here in Champaign County, where I live in Illinois, you know, land is kind of routinely selling for between like 17,000 and 20,000 US dollars an acre. 
um, which I wish I had the hectare and euro conversion to that. I probably should have done yeah. that. But it's ex- it, it basically ins- it basically ensures that um, if you don't have some sort of wealth base, you will not be able to purchase land, um, which you know is can be a, a horrific barrier. But um, you know, there's also I think an opportunity within that as well for us to really rethink how we work on the landscape and how we view ownership of lands um, in the United States specifically, you know, all land is native land and it was stolen land. <laughs> so um, the, the ownership of land is something personally for me, that is a, something that I'm working through and trying to, to, kind of square with agroforestry is an indigenous farming system and land ownership is a colonial system. So how do we kind of figure out systems that work, that honor and not appropriate all the, all the knowledge and, and work that's been done by the native peoples here um, while creating new structures of, of ownership and access that aren't reliant on single single entity or single person ownership. Do you have examples of maybe some initiatives or very localized projects where that's been attempted and, and kind of offers some interesting uh, avenues to explore? Sure. I mean, here, and I'll start with my work because that's the work that I know the best and then can kind of provide some examples that I've been really inspired by. Um I'm really looking right now, my work for the past year and and moving forward is really focused on how can we utilize public agricultural lands for agroforestry. So for example, here in the state of Illinois, we have 85,000 acres of agricultural land that are currently rented out every year for, for the most part, grain agriculture. So that's 85,000 acres that's owned by the state that currently has um, not many conservation requirements in their leases. It's, it's mostly the same type of farming everywhere. And they're often close to sensitive ecological areas, such as waterways or protected wildlife areas. So agroforestry has an opportunity to, uh, to really help protect and those, um, those fragile ecosystems by also providing a pathway for young beginning and returning farmers to utilize land that supposedly belongs to us all (laughs) if it's public land. Um, So I'm, I'm talking, you know, my work in the next year is going to be focused on how can we make that possible here in Illinois. Um, And I've been really inspired by some work that's being done specifically in the city of Chicago um, by the um, Chicago food policy council. And they've been, they've been working with, how to utilize public and city lots for vegetable production for folks um, and getting areas that are publicly owned by park systems or the city of Chicago or other municipalities or um, utilities within the city that is just kind of sitting vacant. So how can folks utilize these public lands that are serving no purpose except as land holding to produce food? And they've really convened a pretty amazing network of folks that uh, control those lands with farmers that are looking for land access and, and are creating some really phenomenal resources around that. Um, 
I've also been really inspired by work that's happening and the work that's been happening forever in, in Mexico um, with communal land holdings and the recognition of the Mexican government of folks to hold land in, in community um, so that community level folks can make decisions of what happens on those landscapes. Um, one of the ways that colonialism has really destroyed Native communities here in the United States is through allotment systems where treaties allocated large tracts of land to Native communities um, that were commun communally held. And then the United States government started allotting those to particular people and families. So they end up breaking apart uh, landscapes that were once held by everyone. So um, it's been digging into that history and, try, and trying to learn what other folks are doing has been kind of key to figuring out how this might work in Illinois. Um, so those are just a, a couple of things that have been inspiring for me in this work. And I, and there's, there's examples of this happening all around the world as well. So these are just like tiny snippets of lots of different work that's happening in places. It's fascinating, but I guess what's uh, even more difficult um, in your situation compared to, for example, Chicago, where there was vacant land, is that here there's different uh, uses of the land that are competing because then uh, that land that's being already leased to broad acre, uh, for broad acre crops to uh, farmers uh, who, you know, and, and how do you, you know, do you include these people? If so, how do you do? And uh, it's, it's quite a similar thing that we have in France where farmers are, farms are getting bigger and bigger because of the subsidy system and because of a lack of a younger generation and because it's always more advantageous to sell to your neighbor at a high price than try and have young people take over which don't have much mm -hmm. capital. So again, it's linked to this capital idea, but it's it's a really tricky question, you know, because it's everything's intertwined. But uh, between these uh, more labor-intensive systems, which have the potential to bring back uh, people on the landscapes uh, and the, the way... Um, the land is being used currently, there's quite a big gap and it's it's really not easy, isn't it, to to mix everything and make sure that, you know, no one's marginalized in the process because that would be counterproductive as well, probably. Yeah, I mean, this is a really big thing because we want, we don't want to, it's, it's really difficult because we don't want to displace anyone from their livelihoods. Right. Like, so when we talk about agroforestry, taking land on a production, that's really the conversation we're having, right, is we're taking money from someone else um, that is that is has their farm business based on this this landscape or as part of their farm business. And I think one of the things that is so unique about agroforestry is that we can do we can have multiple farm businesses and multiple farming systems on one landscape. And so this actually forces us to share in a way that we're not comfortable. <laughs> we're not comfortable with doing, but when it comes, I think there's major opportunities to have, you know, both an older generation and a younger generation operating on the farm landscape and doing kind of two separate things that work together. So alley cropping to me is a huge example of this. Um, and we've been working through different structures of how can alley cropping uh, support 
two folks or two businesses on one landscape, what's the type of planning that's needed? What are the type of lease structures that are needed to make sure that each party is uh, is protected and supported and has opportunity to and say on what happens kind of on, on either side, um, but also to ensure that people are working for a mutual benefit. Um, and it also ensures that, you know, for young farmers and beginning farmers, that they have acreage that they can have the capacity to manage. So oftentimes green farmers have equipment that allows them to um to manage hundreds or thousands of acres at a time. And those machines cost an immense amount of money, $500,000 to a million dollars, you know, like something that, that I would never have access to. But if we take a hundred, say a hundred acre field, um, and we put 10 of those acres into alley cropping, I could probably handle 10 acres, you know, and, and find the opportunity and figure out ways of management uh, to manage those 10 acres. So, and that's, you know, for some folks, that's more than enough land to do the type of farm business that they would be interested in inserting and running. Um, so I think there's major opportunities to really workshop and think through ways that we can build multiple businesses, multiple generations and multiple practices on one landscape, you know, and I think one of the big goals within that also has to be a transition of that landscape. Um, so if we're taking it from conventional kind of chemically managed grain production and then starting to put trees in there, the practices have to change e even to accommodate the trees to ensure that the, the trees and whatever crop is being grown is done in a safe manner that isn't harming the, the crop that's coming off those perennial acres. So it's already starting the conversation of transformation and saying that for this to work for both of us, we need we both need to make some concessions. And with alley cropping over time, you know, the trees will start to impact the, say, a summer grain, like corn or soybeans that are being grown. So then there's an opportunity to transition to wheat, winter wheat or, or winter annuals. And if the, the tree rows are close enough together, then, you know, even winter annuals become untenable on that landscape. So then oh, now we have no choice but to bring animals back on the landscape. So then we have a corn and soybean field that's been completely transformed into a, you know, kind of multi-story silvopasture system. Like that's the dream, right? Like <laughs> that's the ultimate goal. So I think there's there's opportunities to, to really dream and, and figure out how we can make this work for, for everyone. Um because we are going to see a huge transition of land. It's a beautiful dream. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. dream, right? <laughs> Sorry. No, but I mean, it's a beautiful dream in the sense that it makes so much sense and it probably needs to happen that way if, if, if it is going to be successful. But it just requires an incredible amount of flexibility from you know everyone involved. And that's not always easy for someone who's been uh, doing things in a certain way and has a certain representation of uh, what you know their farm is. Uh, going back to that, then uh, being able to say like, no, it doesn't matter, you know, just change crops and then evolve and then bring in back animals. Um, again, I don't think it's necessarily that it's technically impossible. It's, it's just that uh, at the moment you have to find the right people to willing to to engage in that. Mm. Yeah, and that the right people is kind of the hard thing, right? So there's the willing people and then there's the people that 
can be convinced to change a little bit. And then there's folks that won't be able to change at all. And I think that one of the things that working with public lands um, provides an opportunity for is if the land is public, then the government or an entity or agency related to the government is the one that sets the lease standards, which means they have the power to change the lease standards. So it, you could say, well, what's easier to change an individual or to change a government entity? I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> for sure. Um, but I think there's an argument to be made for public entities that agroforestry can help achieve many of the goals that, for example, the state of Illinois has set for themselves when it comes to nutrient loss reduction, where we're pouring you know, nitrogen and phosphorus into our waterways at extremely damaging and high rates. Like agroforestry is proven to, to improve the, that water quality. Um, they have carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas emission caps that they have to meet. You know, all of these things can show that agroforestry can be a tool to help reach the goals of the state of Illinois. So whether or not that's going to be a fruitful argument is kind of my work in the next year <laughs> to see what's possible because you have to give up power for, for systems to transition. Someone has to give up power, land, opportunity, or capital for it to happen. So we really need to look at what's the mechanisms that is going to force that, that uh, transfer of power because it doesn't seem like folks are willingly giving it up. So what mechanisms can we utilize that kind of force those power structures to shift? So a lot of your job actually in the coming months or years is going to be lobbying like public bodies in a sense and trying to make that voice being heard. Um, I have no idea how easy it is to get access to that decision body because here in Europe uh, we're on a Europe, uh, European level in the European mm -hmm. Union for uh, all the decisions around the cap policy uh, you know and that's obviously at a level where an organization of the size of the Savannah Institute uh, even on a national level is quite hard to get to the bottom of it or to get any mm -hmm. any leverage for change because it's so huge you know and there's so many interests um, so yeah is the state level in the US like actually a approachable level of power I think it is. Um, the, it's yet to be seen, but I think this is where the power of community really comes in. Because me as one person or us as the Savannah Institute only has a particular you know, power and a particular audience and a level of, of voice that we can utilize within state or, or federal structures. Um, but when we work together with other organizations that are tapped into particular relationships or networks or are really skilled at amplifying voices and making connections between the folks that are writing the laws and the folks that are enforcing the laws, then we have an opportunity for our message around trees and agroforestry to become tied in with uh, greater arguments and, and greater work around public well-being, environmental protection, um, carbon sequestration in ways that we wouldn't if we were doing it alone. So we're really looking to work rather than the Savannah Institute or me just as an individual person 
you know, kind of launching this work, we're really looking to partner with other organizations that are doing like-minded work so that we can, you know, kind of create a um, connected and larger powered block for action. Um, and, you know, in the United States, at least, the way our constitution is is kind of constructed is states have quite a bit of power within the, the, the structure of the United States. And um, I think for Illinois, we have a pretty progressive governor right now. And the opportunity and within our, you know, the kind of the whole United States government, we have a little bit more of a progressive push. And so the time is now to try to get some, <laughs> to try to get some of these things moving. And we'll see what happens. But I, I think that there is an opportunity. And especially, you know, for, for young folks, it's now or never on some of these things. So we just have to keep trying things until we find something that sticks. So we're going to fail a lot and we're going to go down a lot of dead ends. And, but we just got to keep going. And, you know, a term we use kind of often at Savannah Institute is building the ship while we sail it. And that's kind of what we're doing here too, is building the ship while we sail it. So I have no answers and hope is the only thing keeping us going. <laughs> well, I wish you uh, a lot of luck in this endeavor. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be successful because it's it is a very beautiful dream. And I think it's good to have these visions that keep us going, you know. Um, I wanted to hear a bit more about the demonstration sites. But before we go there, uh, one point that you, you mentioned I find interesting is the access to capital. And I'm wondering, uh, does the Savannah Institute then help? Like, let's say you have people that approach you and they're saying, OK, I'm a landowner and I want to have agroforestry systems or I'm a farmer. Um, do you also like put them in contact with capital? Is it something that you you fundraise in the name of Savannah Institutes? How does this kind of finance aspect work? Yeah, it's something that we're doing a lot more work on now. Um, Savannah Institutes really grew in the past seven years, and we've gone from mostly just like an education and outreach kind of nonprofit to one that's more actively engaged in um, helping farmers and landowners get agroforestry out. And so one of the things that we're doing now through our technical service provider program is specifically connecting farmers and landowners to federal funding through the Natural Resource Conservation Service, um, which is a nationwide program that's administered at the state level um, that cost shares and sometimes covers the full cost of certain agroforestry practice installation. So things like alley cropping, uh, windbreaks, woody repairing buffers, silvopasture establishment. There's cost share funding opportunities where um, the, the NRCS will reimburse you, you know, like 30 to basically 100% of the cost of installation of these systems. And so our TSPs work directly with NRCS to, to help people apply for that funding and get their designs approved. So that's one mechanism. Um, another mechanism is through um, sort of partnership grant programs where we try to work with uh, financial institutions and other entities to kind of innovate different uh, 
insurance strategies, capital finance strategies, loan opportunities for agroforestry to one, provide those opportunities to farmers and landowners, but also two, to push those institutions to open their um, their structures and their minds a little bit to the opportunity and the reality of risk when it comes to agroforestry systems. Um, so I'd say there's a couple different angles. And, you know, in the past year, we've hired a business analyst on staff, which has been like absolutely amazing in, you know, showing what's possible and asking really tough questions around like, well, how much does it actually cost? to design and install a complex, you know, alley cropping system, like, and what are the actual financial projections and returns on those? So one thing that we've been working on in partnership with some other entities is sort of those actual ground truth cost projection models around different practices. And so that's something that's in the works now. But it's also something that's really needed for folks to make informed decisions on how they're going to incorporate these things onto their landscapes. Yeah, that would be amazing when, once that's released, like to get some, maybe do an episode with you guys and, and get that information as well, because it's so hard to get like solid economic data on such complex systems. And that's definitely something I think that would be interesting to get. Uh, an insight into for uh, all our listeners as well as for ourselves. Um, and uh, just on this idea of uh, community building, we've explored a lot like community in the sense of, you know, connecting farmers and landowners and, and lobbying and the greater like political uh, or state level community in a sense. But do you do also things on a more like localized levels with maybe schools or local communities and, and building links with agroforestry as well? Yeah, that's something that we are working more towards in the next couple of years, especially with our demonstration farms. So we really see the the demonstration farms as being hubs for that type of more localized community building. And so for the past two years and two, I should say two seasons, we've been really focusing on just getting those systems off the ground and learning how they work and learning those landscapes and making mistakes and recording those mistakes um, so that we can share with others and the, the long-term goals of these sites are to become those, um, those locations of community building. So working with K-12 education, so really introducing young people to what agroforestry is and, um, and what might be possible for work within those systems or just kind of the internal hope of trees <laughs> on farm landscapes. Um, and also, you know, really working more closely with folks that um, are working within the processing and market side of things as well. So um, one personal project that I've been involved in is a local food processing co-op that's getting off the ground here in central Illinois. And to me, it's things like that that will actually encourage folks to plant more tree crops if there are processing facilities that are close to them that know how to process and store product correctly and then can be used to market that pass there. So um, we're, we're hoping the demonstration farms, I, it's not hope, it's actual real planning that we're doing. <laughs> Um, so it's not just hope, it's actual work and planning, uh, to, to really make them those sorts of local sites 
And that's mm-hmm. why they're kind of spread, at least in Illinois and, and into Wisconsin, they're in very specific geographic locations um, that are near sort of rural air. Like it's a, they're kind of interesting locations that are near universities, near some city centers, but surrounded by larger scale agriculture farmlands. Um, so that there is still access to markets, access to university research, access to populations that buy, but also large amounts of farmland that can then support um, support th- these types of systems being integrated. Amazing. And this, you know, um, it'd be great to understand a bit more about those demonstration sites and what, what those actual designs look uh, like in practice. Could you give us a bit of an overview? Sure. I can definitely talk about the Illinois ones because those are the ones that I work with the most closely. So for the past two years, um, the main the main chunk of my work has been really focused on getting three demonstration farms off the ground here in the state of Illinois. So the first one is the Memorial 4-H Camp Demonstration Farm, and that's located in Monticello, Illinois, and it's land that's owned by the University of Illinois. So it's public lands um, held by what we call a land-grant university here in the United States. And uh, it's 35 acres of what was, for the past 20 years, corn and soybean production. Uh, The site is really interesting because it was originally wooded land. Then it was deforested to become an airstrip. And then it was transitioned into real crop agriculture. So unlike some land uh, in Illinois, there were trees on this site (laughs) originally. Um, And it's a really great location because it's located next to um, an estate called Allerton Park, which is open to the public, which includes hiking trails and formal gardens and a formal mansion that attracts people to the site. So they get about a thousand visitors a year. And this, uh, this agricultural field is adjacent to their main parking lot, which is great. Um, and it's located completely surrounded by corn and soybean land for the most part. And so this site is an alley cropping demonstration where we have six what we call paddocks of trees, which is a confusing term, but I don't know what other term to use. Um, and each paddock of trees is three rows So we have timber as well as native species growing in those three rows. And then we have 200-foot alleys um, where there's corn and soybean production happening. So it's a pretty large, um, as far as alley cropping goes, it's a pretty large length between each paddock of trees. Um, But we did that to create a flexible system. Um, in working with the tenant farmer there, we wanted to create a system that would not change the way that he moves through his fields at all. So the way we laid out the alley cropping design was to make sure that that farmer never did a single extra pass to plant, harvest, or spray their crop. Um, and so that was one way we built trust of saying, we want to learn how you farm, and then we'll fit our system within that. So we designed our system around his production and his equipment. 
And then we left these pretty large alleys so that over time we could add more rows of trees as our relationship with that farmer grew and the trust grew. And then we could work on that design together. Um, it also provided us some flexibility if he changed his equipment. We could then, we had a lot of room to play with. Um, so we really tried to build something that worked for, for both of us. Um, Another interesting thing about this site is our lease on the site. So we have a long-term lease with the University of Illinois. Um, and then we sublease annually to the, to the row crop farmer. So we set the terms of the farmer's lease because we're kind of the main holder of that, that lease land, which has been really helpful for us because that means that we can uh, ban certain chemicals from being used in his farming. So we obviously had a conversation about that before we wrote the lease with that farmer. Um, and we have an annual review of that lease every year. But to us, that was pretty key to ensure there's certain chemicals that are used in the United States that can easily kill trees um, that are routinely used on corn and soybean crops. So we needed that Um that kind of decision-making power within the lease to protect the trees that we were planting. But just to understand, you, you, this farmer wasn't farming that piece of land beforehand. It's like you got the lease from the University of Missouri and then you sourced a farmer in a sense that wanted to farm within that. Oh, thanks for bringing that up. No, the farmer that is, uh, that had that lease had been farming that piece of land for the past 20 years or so. So we worked with him to, to keep him on that land while we were working within the structure. And he was very skeptical at first, but it's been great working with him. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's, he's the farmer. We, that's what we try to do is we keep the farmer on the property if possible, you know, like that's the goal, right? Is because then we can build a relationship. Then we can, uh, they ask questions we build something that works for them and hopefully will also work for their farming neighbors too. And then they become advocates. It's still quite tough for them because it means uh, they do lose a certain amount of power by, you know, even though the, the, the partnership is respectful and everything, you still have to, to make it acceptable to them that now you're setting the terms and, and, re and also modifying, even if it's slightly the way they work. And so I, I understand why it takes a lot of uh, build you know, relationship building, as you were mentioning, because the, the initial reaction must be a bit cautious from their end. Oh, it's totally cautious. It's a little mistrustful. It's totally cautious. It's incredibly skeptical. And then it's also one of those things where, uh, for the most part, the, the farmers and landowners are working with me, this young woman, <laughs> who's not, yeah, who's not the typical person that most farmers that most farmers work with uh we make it work you know but i'm not a uh, i'm not a middle-aged white guy so i there's actually a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that comes with it being me who's doing this instead of another white guy <laughs> but there definitely is like gender and power dynamics within within those two sure coming back to these designs then um where do you get the inspiration and the technical data 
to make those decisions on a choice of uh, crops, for example, and then spacings and maybe projecting things on the long term as well? Sure. You know, we we do design work as a group within the Savannah Institute. So there might be like one or two of us that are, are really kind of driving um kind of driving the uh the goal setting and things like that but we design and and we do goal setting within a group within the savannah institute so for example for the demonstration farms we have a team that works on design elements and uh, goal setting for those farms so we have folks that are uh that have phds and uh, ecology. We have folks that have been doing design work for a long time. There's folks like me that are just anthropologists turned farmers that have no formal training in agroforestry whatsoever. <laughs> mm. um, that and folks that you know work more routinely with farmers and landowners. Um, and so we kind of come together with ideas, and then we look at the research and data. So. There's, you know, obviously a really great research that's come out of France and Europe, specifically on alley cropping systems. Uh, there's really great research that's been done at the University of Missouri here in the United States, um, as well as some great Canadian research on alley cropping. So we kind of look at the data <clears throat> that's already out there. Uh, we look at different designs that have been on the landscape and how those have worked for different farmers and landowners. Um, we make a lot of phone calls to people and say, is this a dumb idea? <laughs> like, is this going to work? Um, and then we take into consideration, you know, like what people might actually do in that area. So the reason we chose timber as our kind of productive tree species for this site in central Illinois is because, um, number one, we were working with a corn and soybean farmer. And we have to make sure that whatever type of farming system they're doing, the alleys is compatible with the trees that are in that paddock because we wanted to kind of create a simple system that could start a transition, but not force major transition right away. And so when we were deciding what tree species um, to use for that timber, we went to the University of Illinois Extension Forester and sat down and had a conversation with him about, you know, this is the soils. This is, you know, what we're planning to do within the system. What would you recommend as the top timber species for this landscape? So we got a series of recommendations from him. And we used that to really build out the system. And when it came to spacing, we were looking at, uh, I already talked a little bit about the farmer's equipment. So that was like number one, the farmer's got to be able to move through the field. Uh, number two, we looked at what equipment Savannah Institute had to manage those, um, those tree rows and how we were going to move throughout the field and get in there to do what we needed to do, um, as well as the equipment we were going to be able to rent or borrow to make those systems happen if needed. Um, and then we kind of sat down and pulled it all together into a first draft and, you know, sent it to the farmer to look at. And we made revisions based on what he, the kind of roadblocks he was going to see with it. Um, we, you know, shared with other folks at SI who then had feedback on the design. And then we kind of came to that design decision. And because we work also with researchers, there's a research component 
to this farm as well, where we're looking at different ground management systems of how we're, what ground covers we're using and how we manage those ground covers for the growth of the trees. So there's, we're constantly kind of balancing um, the, like the demonstration aspect for different types of farmers in that area, the research aspect so we can collect good data, and then just like the ease of management of can we manage this <laughs> this system effectively. Um, and so far, at least for that site, it's worked out pretty well. It's year two, so we have a lot more mistakes and a lot more um, a lot more work to do. But all of that work that went into the design has paid off dividends and dividends because we put the time in to do the research and the communication ahead of time. And now we're just kind of tweaking, tweaking systems as we go. I have to say what I, I find very smart with uh, your approach is the fact that you work with uh, farmers you know, and other tenants that are in their reality and that you have to therefore compromise and, and work with that reality because you know, if you were just 100% managing that land, it'd be so tempting to go for like much more complex systems uh, because you have that freedom and then completely disconnect yourself from your surroundings in terms of farming reality. So I think that's really inspiring and um, and, and really amazing that you, you get to have this dialogue between maybe some very ambitious uh, plans or ideas or things you've seen around and then, okay, well, let's make this work with the, the, the local context. I think that's amazing. Um, and I was, I was wondering when I was listening to you, so the deal with the farmer is um, he just takes care of his crops and then you come in and do all the management of the trees and uh, then we'll also like sell the produce. Like you, you have the kind of tree um, operation completely separate and that you're in charge with. Yep. So the, the tree paddocks are completely uh, managed, leased and profited through the Savannah Institute. So um, this is one system we use for the demonstration farms is that if it's going to be a Savannah Institute demonstration farm, um, Savannah Institute holds the, the overarching lease. Um, we make design decisions with input, obviously, lots of community input and conversations. And we make the decisions on the ground um, for the lease sections that we hold. And then we manage and, and harvest and potentially profit from the whatever is coming off of them. So whether that be profit of research, profit of crop um, production, um, profit of education. <laughs> that sounds like a weird phrase to use. No, but, I understand. Um, but I'm assuming you're also really uh, planning these systems as like profitable economically, because if the plan is later for you know younger farmers to be able to to replicate what the Savannah Institute is doing today, it's quite important that you could earn a livelihood just from these tree paddocks. Yeah, one hundred percent. So that's one of the reasons that we have different systems and on different demonstration farms um, is to show you know the different economic possibilities from. Um, from different practices. So like the alley cropping uh, is kind of long-term investment and profitability of timber. So we have black locust, black walnut, swamp white oak, and shagbark hickory as kind of our timber species. And then we're also adding a couple of rows this year of uh, northern pecan, which is for nut production, but can also be used for, for timber as well. And then on 
Fields Restored, which is a, another demonstration farm, um, we have an edible riparian buffer. So showcasing kind of the ways that we can use riparian buffers for water quality and soil erosion prevention and soil health, but also um, creating harvestable, profitable crops that can come off of that riparian buffer. Um, and then we're all, there's also a silvopasture experiment happening there where we're looking at different tree combinations in a silvopasture by addition, we're planting trees into pasture for fodder. Um, so with all of these things, we're taking labor numbers, we're taking establishment cost numbers, um, and we're looking at labor hours so that we can actually provide really detailed projections for folks around like all the work that was done, all the money that was spent, and here's the findings basically from these demonstration farms. Have you found ways in the designs to ensure some like short-term cash flow sometimes? Because what's particularly difficult when you start a perennial system can be those first few years of establishment. And usually you can use sometimes the space between the trees to, you know, run chickens or have animals or grow vegetables, anything that will kind of give you that short-term income. So if you don't have access to that in alley in a way, because you, you have like a system like you're implementing with a farmer that's mm -hmm. cultivating it, uh, are you managing to, to do that on the line then? Yeah. So this has been a really kind of blind spot within the demonstration program here in Illinois is that because of staffing and um, because we're managing multiple farm landscapes at one time, we actually haven't been able to do any of that short term kind of annual cash flowing that is really important um, for folks that need that transition help and like obviously the situation that most young and small diversified farmers find themselves in when they're wanting to add perennials to their landscape. Um, one thing that is going to help address that a little bit on the Savannah Institute side is that the Savannah Institute now does own farmland in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And so there's going to be farmers living on the property of that farm that's going to allow livestock to come into the equation in a way that we haven't been able to do in Illinois that is going to um, allow for annual production and more of these short-term sort of um, profit builders that allow for agroforestry transition that we're just not able to do with the way that our, our staffing and, and network is set up here in Illinois. So, I mean, ultimately, it ha you have to have both, right, <laughs> in order for it to work So we're just kind of demonstrating one model where it's more of this like grain sort of grain transition model. And in Wisconsin, they're going to be modeling completely different ways of doing that. Amazing. And uh, in terms of the designs you've gone for, uh, we kind of explored more like the timber uh, system. But then you also mentioned like a edible riparian buffer. Um, do you have then different levels of complexity that you go for, like some really simple ones and some like more diversified and and complex systems? Yeah, so we've decided, you know, kind of the designs based on, number one, the landscape. So the landscape always comes first of, you know, what what type of agroforestry can we do to serve this landscape and, and this farm um, the best? And then the second is looking outside of that farm to systems that we think fo folks would want to see and could be operationalized on the surrounding landscapes. Um, and then 
the third thing is like, are we able to manage the systems that we design and create? Um, because if we can't, if we don't have the capacity, then we can't do it and we can't get good data and we can't do it well. Um, but so we've, we've gone with more simple systems than come. I mean, there's complexity within every system that we create, but we tend to go for the systems that are more easily managed um, in terms of day to day or week to week or, you know, month to month management. But we are bringing on a new demonstration farm in Champaign County where I'm located. And we have kind of our hub of personnel and equipment and, and things like that. Um, we're bringing on a farm that is going to be much more complex within its design and management. So for this farm, we're looking at um, fruit and nut alley cropping, which we haven't done in other places and some kind of multi-story work within that. We're looking at experimentation with different sized alleys within that alley cropping system. So looking from 40 foot alleys to 120 foot alleys. So we're able to see the differences um, between those. And we're also looking at elderberries and hazelnuts and um, things that number one, come into production a little, well, a lot sooner if we're talking about timber, <laughs> but uh, a little sooner if we're talking about fruit and nut production um, and doing some variety trials and some work around those so we can find, you know, what's what varieties are going to work really well here in Illinois and the Midwest. So those systems are going to take, a, they're going to be more complex in design. They're going to be more complex in management, but we're also going to only travel 10 minutes to manage those systems where the rest of the demonstration farms in Illinois are spread out sometimes an hour and a half between each other, an hour and a half drive which means we can't manage them daily. So there are systems that we're managing weekly or monthly. I think it would be really interesting to get the data out of that and, and see how, um, how it works out because, uh, you know, we had started with a very complex system when we were working in Greece with Dimitri. And uh, although we, we saw how exciting it was on an ecological uh, perspective, we also the huge, saw the huge challenges coming in, in in terms of management and sometimes the additional costs linked to complexity. But, you know, we've already discussed that in, in previous episodes, but um, I'll be really interested to see, you know, um, the same people measuring different things on different sites. Uh, I think that would be fascinating data, really. It's also been a stretch for me as someone that uh, wants to dig really deep into one thing in one place. And this work across multiple landscapes has really forced me to change the ways that I think about landscapes and places and work um, to accommodate sort of work that's spread out a little bit instead of work that's more deep and localized. And I would say there's trade-offs on both. Obviously, like you were just saying, like complexity can lead to like deep ecological richness that you wouldn't get from more simple systems. But I think that the power within designing simple systems is you can build complexity over time as you have time and capital and, and capacity, which is something that I've really had to learn over these past couple of years of working on the ground is where that balance lies. Because within farming, you're always going to, sometimes you feel like you're just putting out fires, right? <laughs> instead of Instead of farming, so how can you get to the point where you put out a fire once a week or once a month instead of putting out fires daily? Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good good analogy. Um, and are you are you keeping uh, timber uh, in your designs? Uh, for example, I was talking with uh, Eric Tonsmeyer recently, and he was he's actually um, you know writing a, a little booklet on um, alley cropping, um, and that he'll be releasing. Uh, and he was saying like because he obviously studied a lot of systems in Europe, uh, especially in France, and then uh, he was telling me a bit what was going on in the US and you were saying that in the US uh, people are moving away from timber and going more towards nuts and fruits just for a question of like harvest cycles and you know people weren't willing to to wait 40 years to get a return on their investment um is that something you're getting as, like that vibe from the field as well and talking with farmers and yeah i think it depends on the type of farmer and landowner and what they actually need um You know, I think that there's need for both kind of long-term and short-term. If we are constantly going short-term, then we're kind of um, selling ourselves short a little bit. And if we don't incorporate timber into these agroforestry systems, then we'll just continue plantation lumber production. Um, so I think that there's room and opportunity for both. But I want to recognize what, what Eric is saying there. Because that short, shorter turnaround and that higher profit margin is vital for letting folks actually engage in these types of practices that are perennial and take a large amount of investment. Um, so I think that there's, you know, there's ways to do both, but it depends on what scale and what location and who's engaged in the work. So when it comes to, you know, cash flowing. That's really a question for each individual farmer and landowner of, you know, fruit and nuts are probably meeting the goals that they're setting for themselves in a much faster and different way than timber production is. Um, and for folks that have smaller land footprints, of course, that would make way more sense. Uh, but here in the Midwest, where we have large tracts of land that are sometimes owned by one person or one entity. And then I think we have different possibilities um, and also kind of creates um, long-term transition that, that can happen on that landscape. So I think that both are important, um, but, you know, from the smaller landholding folks that we work with, fruit and nut is absolutely what they're going for within their alley cropping and perennial systems. I'm wondering, uh, have you, you know, developed some ideas on the sales um, aspect? Because that's obviously a few years down the line, but how are you planning to commercialize um, and also handle the logistics on all these different sites? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, One of the things that we're looking at when it comes to sort of the marketing and logistics of these is how can we incorporate our apprenticeship program into the demonstration farm program? Like, are there folks that are coming out of the apprenticeship program that would be open, willing, and able to kind of take over the systems that we've put into place, where they become the main managers, they become the profiters of those sites? And are, they sort of put in the work to do that, either on a short-term or a long-term scale, so that we can sort of provide land access and, and business opportunity to folks. Um, we recognize that that's not 
always appealing to folks because oftentimes folks want to set up their own systems and they want to kind of build their own businesses. Um, but it's an opportunity to, to learn um, as you're, as you're growing. And for, for example, my husband and I rent a, an apple orchard and it's, it's a yearly lease, but we did this number one to keep an apple orchard in production from a couple that was retiring and two, so we could actually learn how to manage apples. So we run a business on rented orchard land (laughs) with this apple orchard. And it's been really great for us to see what works and what doesn't work. And it's provided us an opportunity that we would have never had if we were starting from scratch with young trees. So I think there's an opportunity for us to, to do that with the apprenticeship program and to actually provide options for folks afterwards. Um, and if that ends up staying within the Savannah Institute, um, for timber, you know, there's already markets in Illinois for, for timber. So being able to, to sell that, there's, there's strong market channels where that, that would be easy to move. For things like fruit and nuts, you know, we're, we're helping build those systems of processing and aggregation that we would just then support the systems that are already in place. Or if we are, have an opportunity to, you know, be a host to a processing facility or things like that, then that would also work within our mission um, and, and help support not only us, but other folks in that region as well. And what scale do you see the demonstration farms um, evolving to? Because obviously it's like a huge amount. I hadn't realized that you you kind of design, manage, and you know actually fully fully uh, manage the whole um, you know perennial aspects of it. So are you kind of reaching a steady level where you're just going to be following up on what's been put into place, or uh, are you gonna? Because I assume that the more uh, time goes by, people are going to come with you wanting. Uh, you know, I'm a landowner, I have an opportunity, I want to put trees on. But at some point, you, you do have to kind of stay like, we can't do this anymore. You'll end up having like a huge farming entity. <laughs> yeah, our, our goal is not to to farm like thousands and thousands and thousands of acres <laughs> of <laughs> land. Um, but this is a big question that, you know, Savannah Institute is going through a strategic planning process right now. And this is a big question that we have within the demonstration farm program that, you know, we're really looking at, you know, what are these farms doing? Why are they here on the landscape? And what are the boundaries that we set for ourselves to ensure that we have robust management, good oversight, and that we're utilizing the opportunities that come to us effectively? So sometimes that means that, we say no and suggest someone else <laughs> and then, you know, allow those, those opportunities to go to other folks. Um, but, you know, we created a decision mat- matrix for deciding how we would bring on other farms. And so part of that decision matrix is, um, are we able to showcase a practice here that we can't showcase in the other place? Um, is there genetic diversity on this landscape that we want to maintain and support? Um, does this demonstration farm serve a community that we're not currently serving and has been asked for or provided interest from that community? Um, are we able to have a long-term lease here 
so that we can do the work that we need to do and make sure that it serves Savannah Institute as well as the landscape. So these are like the big questions that we're asking as folks are like, it would be great to have a demonstration farm on my property or, or this property, um, but we have to be able to manage it. So, you know, we have a hub of work in Champaign County, Illinois. Um, we're going to be having a hub of work in Spring Green, Wisconsin. So it, it all comes down to that decision matrix, funding levels, and things like that. But ultimately, our goal with like all of our programs is for us not to be ever constantly expanding, but for us to help hopefully build some strong models that can be re replicated for other organizations and other farmers and landowners so that we don't have to have a demonstration farm everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, for so sure. So that there's actually other demonstration farms and demonstration sites that are managed and run and, and ultimately serving um, people that just isn't the Savannah Institute. And maybe as a final question, although maybe it should have been my first question, but, you know, um, you know, are there some really interesting um, mistakes or, you know, uh, challenges that you encountered that you'd like to share and Uh, that can inspire maybe other people uh, experimenting with agroforestry systems? I'll say that I've made an incredible amount of mistakes and that I'm still pretty young and new to agroforestry. So I have at least 50 years of mistake making ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel like the, the biggest mistake that um, I've personally made and that we've made on our demonstration farms is sometimes moving too fast. So what I mean by that is having a really great idea, um, thinking we have all the data, um, thinking we know what we're doing, and then moving forward without doing some deep observation. So this is, I say this in terms of like, it's in my mind, it's great to have at least a year on a property before planting anything perennial so that you learn how humans and animals and equipment and water and the sun move across the landscape. Um, and you look at a full season of pest cycles. You look at a full uh, cycle of uh, freezing and thawing and, you know, depending on where you're at. And then you're, you, that might change where you will put certain things. Because when you plant a tree, that tree is there for a long time. And our goal is always right tree, right time, right place. And so if you move too quickly, it's really easy to mess up one of those three things. <laughs> yeah, for sure. um, so I feel like a lot of mistakes, especially when it comes to weed pressure, establishing ground cover, choosing the right species um, in the right soils, taking a year or at least, you know, a couple seasons to make those deep observations can pay off dividends. Um, and I especially say this with weeds, with weed management and establishing ground cover. Um, if you get the timing, if you get the timing and the right ground cover or ma like management system right, you actually don't spend that much time weeding. If you don't get the timing and the ground cover right, you spend the majority of your time weeding. So <laughs> I've done more weed whipping than I ever care to do in my entire life. 
<laughs> and uh, so every design and system that I help with is always focused on how do we not weed whip ever <laughs> at this site? Because <laughs> I am done with, with that type of management. <laughs> so I'm looking at, you know, like, how can we use landscape fabric? How can we use heavy mulching? How could, like, what are the different mechanisms that we can use for seeding? What are like different ground cover combinations or cover cropping schemes that we can get our weed seed banks down so that uh, we don't have to be weeding? Um, I feel like that's like the biggest mistake that that I've made and we've made. And I would say also the um, another one that I've kind of struggled with is timing. So getting the timing right for things like planting, pruning, spraying, um, even weeding to make sure that you're, you know, knocking things back before they set and drop seeds. Um, When you're managing multiple landscapes, if you miss a window, that might set you back an entire year. So when it comes to design, and this is one of the reasons that we're, you know, starting a little more simple, more than complex, and then adding the complexity in later, is it can be really difficult to get all the timing right across multiple landscapes. Um, And I didn't even mention this, but like pest cycles, you're not on the farm maybe, and you'll miss the larva stage or a stage or the egg stage where you can easily knock back a pest. Um, but you're not there to see it, and so you miss it completely. So integrated pest management becomes really, really difficult across multiple landscapes. Um, so that's a that's a big, big blind spot and mistake um, that we've made. And then the third is making sure you have the right equipment for the job. <laughs> and sometimes that means waiting until you can afford the right piece of equipment. Um, or not designing your system around the equipment you think is coming, but you might not ever get. (laughs) (laughs) So just being really honest uh, with the equipment that you have now, the time you have now uh, to do it, because the the equipment thing is really, really, really hard, especially when you're borrowing equipment or things break down or or things like that. Um, So... We've been traveling around in a bus for the past two years. So the equipment that we've been able to use has been limited. And uh, San Institute is getting some tractors and things that <laughs> are going to make things a little easier. <laughs> yeah, but. for sure. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for sharing this so honestly. And it's it's always more interesting to hear about what went wrong than what went well, isn't it? So <laughs> all our listeners yeah, will be happy. Check back with me. <laughs> Check back with me next year. I'll have more mistakes to add. To <laughs> and it. successes, I'm sure. And I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, we, we will uh, with great pleasure. And it was really fascinating to talk with you today. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I just want to express some gratitude to you and Dimitri for this podcast and all the wisdom and knowledge that's shared. It's been Uh, It's been really fascinating and hopeful and um, just 
so wonderful to be able to learn from so many different people in one place. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. As usual, all links are below. Feel free to reach out to us with uh, some ideas of guests or questions that you would like us to ask. Also consider supporting the podcast to make this uh, viable on the long run. Thank you very much.